Go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, next week I'm preaching an all-out, flat-out, blatant Christmas sermon. All right, But you know what's interesting is today uh, we're sticking with this series in 1 Timothy. But at the end of it all, you're going to see that today's sermon is really a Christmas sermon. You're gonna, during the sermon, you're going to be like, I don't know what he's talking about. This ain't a Christmas sermon. It really is. Uh, but next week I'm going to teach a blatant Christmas sermon. The series we're in, if you've been around for a while, is called The Front Lines of Faith. In the book of 1 Timothy, you have an apostle, Paul, telling a pastor, Timothy, that there are certain things in the church that he needs to pick up his rifle, march towards, and defend at all costs. We're learning about what we're supposed to be fighting for, defending in the church. Okay? It's called The Front Lines of Faith. And in chapter 3, we're learning about how leaders are supposed to be the first ones to the front line, defending these things and uh, exemplifying the character traits found um, in the book. Uh, now, when it, comes to, when it comes to leadership in the church, hey, small group leaders, hey, pastors, hey, elders and deacons, and those of you who lead ministry teams, your job here is to help those around you mature. Go on to spiritual maturity. What, what like parents are in the home, leaders are in the church. Parents are always supposed to help their kids grow up, right? Now, dads and moms... They help their kids grow up differently. Dads, we like to toughen our kids up. Am I right? Go ahead and eat dinner without washing your hands. Germs are good for you, right? Guys, we just like to toughen our kids up as we grow them up to maturity. I've got a few pictures here of dads who are trying to toughen their kids up for life. Check this out. This dad's trying to get his little girl ready. Get on out there on the boat. Mom would never do that. Am I right? Mom's probably screaming on the shore right now. Here's the next one. This dad's really trying to go all out to make his kids tough. Get over here. Let's go work out. How about this next one? This dad is, he's just trying to do whatever he can to give his kids some wild experiences, right? Look at that. I think we've got one more. This dad is trying to get his kids tough for life. Isn't that cute? Isn't that cute? Drop and give me 20. Why do dads do that? Why do parents do that? Because we know that our kids aren't going to mature themselves, right? They're going to try and and be dependent, spoon-fed babies forever unless we do something about it, right? Pick up your room. Uh, We've got to bring them to maturity. When it comes to um, the church, leaders are supposed to help those around us move on to maturity, to strength, right? That's our job. Now, when it comes to spiritual growth and maturity, we're going to talk about two major fundamental areas of growth in the Christian life today. All right, these two areas, once you get saved, God's going to go to work in these two areas and he's going to grow you up. The two areas are money and power. How God is going to grow us up in the areas of money and power and mature us. Let's pray and then we'll get into the word together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word is strong, capable of bringing us from spiritual infancy on up to spiritual maturity. Help us, Lord, to grow stronger. Help us, Lord, to grow wiser. Help us, Lord, to increase in devotion to you over time. And may it be for your glory, by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, are you there, 1 Timothy chapter 3? Are you there? 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, we've been going through this chapter, but it's it's like one long run-on sentence, right? So we've been just taking pieces of it each week, and we've covered most of it. The sermon today is going to come from the tail end of verse 3. Look at verse 3. 
See, there's a list there. We've already covered all these. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. But we left the last one for today. And it says, not a lover of money. Leaders in the church, we're not supposed to be lovers of money. We're supposed to grow up out of that. And then skip down to verse 6. It says, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. What is that talking about? That's talking about power. If you were to give a new believer, if you were to give him power in the church, he wouldn't know what to do with it and he would be puffed up with conceit. Money, power. Today we're talking about what it means to grow up to spiritual maturity in money, so we're not lovers of money, and in power, so we're not full of ourselves in loving power. Write this down first, though. We have to grow up and pursue spiritual maturity. We have to grow up and pursue spiritual maturity. The New Testament describes your spiritual journey from the moment you're saved till the moment you go home to heaven as one of growing up. You're going to be growing up from now until Christ comes back or you go on. You're going to be growing up. And new believers have a lot of growing up to do. We all know what it means as babies to have to grow up to maturity physically. Am I right? You were once a baby and you could do nothing. Nothing but cry and poop. That's all you could do on your own. (laughs) Then you had to grow up, right? Sometimes we find some babies who are like geniuses and they can do things faster or better than others, right? I found some pictures of, of babies who were growing up faster than they should. Check this out. Here's a baby. Look at that baby go strong. Check out this next one. This baby is just doing push-ups one-handed. All right. Now you look at those pictures and you're like, no, that's photoshopped because babies can't do anything, right? Because they're babies. Why do we have to grow up physically? Because if we just stay babies, carry me around, feed me, then, you know, we're not going to make much of this life. Um, We have to grow up. And you know what it looks like when somebody grows up to be physically strong, right? No longer a baby, but strong. Check this out. This guy, he is physically mature. Look at the strength on that guy. He's holding a shark. Oh, yeah. Who wouldn't want to be like him? Now, spiritually speaking, you have to grow up. Uh, There are times when you're not strong enough. There are times when you're not informed enough where you're not there are times where God has more to pour into you so that you will grow up to become the person he wants you to be so we have to grow up and pursue spiritual maturity it says in verse 6 he must not be a recent convert recent convert meaning it's not acceptable to just leave the believer the way you found him if you're going to make him a leader he has to have grown up the bible even says in the new testament that we're supposed to bring all to maturity in Christ. I mean, you look around at different churches and you point at every person in the room and you say God wants her mature in Christ and him and him, everyone. That's a daunting task to truly seek that every... And at Harvest, we lean into that. Listen, if you're newer to our church, one of the things you're going to find out real quick is if you come in and sit down and say, hey, I'm here, just don't ask me to change for the next 20 years. You will not feel loved here (laughs) because we're coming after you. It's not acceptable for you to sit down in this church and for you to have decades ahead of you of spiritual growth and for you to assume that the download is 100% complete. There's nothing more spiritually that God can give you. Not in this church. You're going to grow up. We're going to help make it happen. It says he's not supposed to be a recent convert. That phrase there, 
in the Greek means literally newly planted, not newly planted. So check this out. Here's a, here's a newly planted, it's just a little sprout. Isn't it cute? Just a little sprout, just the first growth that comes up out of the ground. You've got to protect it. You've got to water it. The little bunny's going to try and eat it up, right? New believers are like that. They're that needy. They're that young. They're that small. They're that vulnerable. And, and you can't take a little sprout and make them an elder or a pastor. New believers have to be cared for and protected. You have to be just as delicate with They're breakable. You have to be just as delicate with them as you would a small child. And you can't leave them that way. You have to grow them up. And new believers, they have a lot to learn. Um, I was saved in college. I was a freshman in college. Uh, I had grown up in the Catholic Church, so I went through religious ed. But frankly, as a senior in high school, I didn't know very much about the Bible. So after I got saved, I was this baby believer. And when it comes to my walk with Christ, I can honestly tell you I didn't know much about the Bible. You know, here as a freshman in college, the only time I read the Bible in my life was when I had to, to like write my report, right, for my church class. I certainly never picked it up because I wanted to. So when I started opening up my Bible for devotions and reading, reading like Genesis over, over my frosted flakes at the breakfast table, I was blown away. It was the first time I had ever read a lot of this stuff. And I'll never forget as a new baby believer finishing the book of Acts, and hearing how God grew his church in the first century. And just my heart was pounding like, this is so exciting how this church grew. And then I was like, wait, what happened next? He was just left in jail. I don't know how the story ended. And I was so filled with excitement because it was the first time I had read it. I remember that. I had a long way to go. I didn't know what I, what I should have. When it comes to my working for Christ, um, I had really never done anything for Christ. For Christ, Maybe I did some community service when I got in trouble, right? Uh, some good deeds. But, but I'll never forget my first church work day. I attended this small church in the western suburbs of Chicago, Melrose Park. And, uh, and it was work day. So I was a college student, so I came Saturday morning for work day. And they put me in charge of light bulbs and grass seed. That's all I could do back then. Screw in the light bulbs and drop some grass seed, right? Uh, later that summer... Because I did well with the light bulbs and the grass seed, I got put on snack duty for VBS. I got to hand out the juice boxes. But it didn't go so well because I got bored, so I handed out juice boxes to the kids, and then I just pelted a kid with an ice cube because I got bored. And I started an ice cube fight at VBS. Kids are whipping ice cubes at each other. So then I got demoted back to light bulbs and grass seed. I've come a long way. That first church work day, it was like this. I had to get up on a ladder and change light bulbs in these old type of light fixtures, and it took a long time. Then I had to put grass seed down outside. And at the end of that day, I'm just sitting around with church people, and I didn't want to go home. I'm like, this is so fun. I'm just doing things for the Lord. I've never done this before. I was this baby believer who just loved working for Christ. Um, when it comes to my worship, how I worship Christ, man, I didn't know how to worship Christ. I didn't know the songs you all were raised on. I, just, I, was, I was a heavy metal drummer. I listened to heavy metal music. And then I showed up to this church and got saved, and they're singing these songs that I'd never heard before, right? Like, uh, what songs were you raised on? Because in my first church, we sang, you know, like, What can wash away my sins? The blood of Jesus. See, and I heard that song for the first time, and I'm like, this song's amazing. It's about Jesus. All the songs are about Jesus here. I just love singing these. We sang this song 
Maybe the Baptists would know this one. You know the song, At Calvary? You know that song? Mercy there was great and grace was free. Part, do you know that one? Am I the only one? Pardon there was multiplied. This is why they don't let me sing on Sunday. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burden soul found liberty. I'm this heavy metal drummer like there my burden soul found liberty at Calvary. And there was like a piano and an organ. Um, a year earlier, and I had been like, this is the dorkiest music I've ever heard in my life. But now I've got the spirit in me, and I'm just singing with all my heart because I'm a baby believer, and I just want to sing to Jesus. Um, baby believers have a long way to go in their walk, in their work, in their worship. But here's the thing. We have to understand that there are things that happened in their lives from the moment they got saved, Right? Those things will never change. If you're a newer believer, you have to understand. You might look around the room and say, oh boy, there's all these spiritually mature people. I'm I'm nothing like them. That's not true. Do you know the moment you're saved, you're adopted into God's family. You're a new creation. God's spirit lives in you. You're a temple of the living God. You're forgiven of all of your sins. You're redeemed. You're set free. You become a servant of Christ, an heir of the promises of eternal life, and your place in heaven is secure forever. And it happens like that. And nothing can ever reverse it. You're saved. But the rest of your life, you're going to grow up. Because there are things that didn't happen the moment you got saved. The moment you got saved, you were not trained in righteousness. Okay, You did not know what God's Word says, which is why the Bible says, Find out what pleases the Lord. You're going to spend a lifetime drawing from what God did from you, God did in you the first moment you were saved, and you're going to grow up for the rest of your life. He's going to constantly be shaping you. Think of it this way. There's really two kinds of faith in the Bible. There's saving faith. That's a crisis where you're faced with the truth of Christ, the truth of your depravity. You have to respond to it in order to be saved. And if it happens, everything about you changes in an instant. That's saving faith. But then there's walking faith. Walking faith is where you start putting these promises of God into practice, one step in front of the other. Saving faith is one decision that changes your life forever. Walking faith is a thousand choices throughout a thousand days, and they change endlessly. You're going to spend your life growing in faith, but it all starts with saving faith. So you're going to grow up, and we have to all set our heart on growing up and pursuing spiritual maturity. Now, here, there's two things we're going to talk about. What does it mean to grow up? Two areas we're going to talk about money and power. Write this down. When we grow up, we have to grow up out of our love for money. Write that down. We have to grow out of our love for money. It says in verse 3 that leaders in God's church must not be lovers of money. Do you see that? Must not be a lover of money. In the Greek, it literally reads silver lover. He must not be a silver lover. There are groups and individuals in the New Testament who portray for us what it meant to love money. I'm sure you can think of some. Tax collectors. They would join sides with the empire, with Rome. And they would take money from the people of Israel. And then they would jack up the rates and keep some for themselves. They were loathed because they loved money. Tax collectors. Zacchaeus. What a corrupt, crooked Thief he was, tax collectors, right? 
Ananias and Sapphira in the early church. Do you remember what they did? They decided to give to the church. They sold a piece of land and they conspired together to lie and in front of everyone to bring the money from the sale of the land and put it at the apostles' feet, right? Only what they didn't tell people is they kept some of it for themselves, meaning it was really just a profitable sale and they gave God some of it. But they wanted the glory as if they gave all of it to the church. Look, we sold this whole piece of land and gave it all to God. Aren't we awesome? But the Spirit looked straight into their heart and God was so displeased with them, He struck them dead in the church because they lied and deceived the Spirit. Greed. Ananias and Sapphira were, were filled with greed. Um, Judas. How did, how did Satan actually accomplish the crucifixion of Christ? He started with greed in the heart of a follower. And Judas chose silver, literally silver lover, silver instead of the Messiah. Little bag of, little bag of money instead of the Savior of the world. Greed has power to ruin you spiritually and to ruin churches, which is why we must grow out of our love for money. It's sad when pastors, when elders, when preachers do it for the bucks. They disguise in their heart why they do it. You know, of course, they're not going to come right out and be like, I'm here for money. Um, but they are. Some of them are. They really want the money. We have to grow out of our love for money. Otherwise, leaders will ruin the church. and We won't grow. A surefire way to stunt your spiritual growth, to screech to a halt, is to love money. You can't love money, the Bible says, and God. You can't serve both money and God. It's one or the other. And you've made a choice. You have. It's like The Bachelor. There's one rose, one rose, and who's going to get it? It's either money or God. You can't break it in half and be like, here, both of you be happy. The Bible says it's either one or the other. And if, it's, and if you pick money, you automatically do not pick God. If money is number one, God automatically cannot also come first. Therefore, you won't mature spiritually. Now, right now, either God or money is sitting enthroned in your heart. You have made a choice, and you have to detect the choice you made. But it's not as if the choice is irreversible. It's not as if, like, uh-oh, I chose money, I'm doomed forever. And it's not as if, all right, God's winning, that's done. It is a daily thing. It's a daily battle to make sure that money doesn't climb up on the throne of your heart. Are you a dog owner? Are you a dog owner? Get off the couch. And then he'll never get on the couch again, right? You just got to tell him once. No. You say get off the couch and 10 minutes later, what are you saying again? Come on, say it with me. And then two days later, he thinks you're not watching anymore, right? What do you have to say again? Get off the couch. Same thing with money. Get off the heart. Two days later, back on the throne. Get off the heart. I like it up here. Get off it's going to be day in and day out. All right? So there is a process. There is a process of you dethroning money in your heart. But listen, if you want to grow up, you have to grow out of your love for money. Hebrews 13.5, we'll put it on the screen, says this. Keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's a daily battle. Why do we, why do we love money? We love money because money makes promises to us. Money promises us pleasure. 
fun if we just had it. Places we could go, the things we could buy. Money promises us pleasure, enjoyment. Money promises us security. If you have me, money, if you have me, I can make sure your kids go to a nice college and get settled into a good job and career. You see, you need me, money says, to give your kids a secure future. Um, Problem is, money makes promises that only your God can keep. Money will make promises to you that only your God can keep. The truth is, your money can't give you or your children a solid, stable future. It's fickle. It can disappear like a vapor in the wind. Only God can give you security. Only God can give your children security. You think money can give you happiness? All the toys that you want, all the traveling you want to do, you think at the end of all that you're going to be filled with eternal joy? Only God can put that in your heart. So money lies to you to get on the throne of your heart. Okay, money, sit on up the throne of my heart because you're making some awesome promises to give my kids a future and to give me joy. And, and you know what? Your money's lying to you. Money can't do any of those things. Which is why we have to grow out of our love for money and tear this rival God off of our heart and force him to bow at the feet of the king of kings along with everything else in our life. How do we know if we love money? It's tough, right? You know if you love cookies, right? Easy to figure that one out. (laughs) You know if you love pizza. You know if you love cats. Cat owners, you know if you love cats. How do I know if I love money? Like, really, how do I know? And, and small group leaders, like, how do I help a person? How do I know if somebody in my small group loves money? It's not like somebody's going to be wearing a T-shirt like, I'm all about the bucks. Here's some symptoms of love for money. You might want to jot these down. How do you gauge if someone loves money? Uh, greed. Greed, the constant grasping for more and more. Discontent with their income. And there's a willingness on the part of the greedy person to trade for money. They'll trade their family for money because money comes first. They'll trade their God for money because money comes first. Basically, in the heart of a greedy person, everything in their life, all of their skills, their opportunities, their time, uh, everything, the people in their life, they add all that up and God's in there somewhere. God's in there somewhere. It's a part of it. But, But all of that is supposed to amount to money. To the greedy person, all of that should equal money. To the godly person, the equation is everything in their life, their kids, their family, their work, their skills, their talents, money's in there somewhere, should equal God. Money's just a part of that person's life plan to glorify God. See? But the greedy person doesn't know that. For the greedy person, money is the wind in their sails. And if money turns left, they turn left. If money turns right, they turn right. It's greed. Vice is the next one. Vice means you're willing to gain money in sinful, underhanded, worldly ways. The way you're getting your money is illegal or wrong or shady. But you don't care. Maybe that's a symptom that you love money. Flaunting is another symptom of love for money. The public displaying of luxury and lavish indulgence. You want other people to see your wealth. You flaunt it in front of them. It's the thing that you want to be defined by. Behold your glory. The flaunting of wealth might indicate you love it. Deception is another one. Maybe you're not breaking laws or anything, but you're not being honest with your spouse. You're being evasive at work. You're just kind of clouding up things 
about money. You're manipulating or you're unaccountable with money because you don't want people to touch your God. And so you're abrasive when anyone tries to bring it up with you. Deception, deception. That might help you understand if you're loving money right now. Arrogance is the last way you can gauge if you love money. Of course, because you define yourself and everyone around you by their net worth in comparison, you're condescending to those around you and you're maintaining a sense of entitlement because your money has told you now that you are a God too. That's the end. Money tries to convince you you're a God. But money lies. We have to grow out of our love for money. 1 Timothy 6, 6 6-8, we'll put it on the screen, says this, Now there's great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of the world. Raise your hand if you were born with a Rolex on your wrist. Nobody? That's what I thought. Uh, And you ain't moving on to the next life with anything that's in your account right now. It's all left behind. We cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Do you want to know what truly belongs to you? Go like this. Look at this. Just go, go on. Do this. Do this. That's what's really yours. Nothing. You come in with this. You leave with this. In between, you just get to play with other people's stuff. It's passing through just like you. Therefore, love for money is a lie. We shouldn't love money. We need to grow out of that. How? Well, we have to pursue contentment. The lie is that if we had more money, then we would be happier, we would be more secure. That's a lie. HBO ran a special. I didn't watch the whole thing. It was called Lucky. And they followed lottery winners for years after their winnings to see if it truly brought them joy and happiness. And guess what? It didn't. In fact, one guy who squandered $5 million that he won and ended up homeless living with a buddy on the floor, his friend looked at him after this and said, yeah, um, winning the lottery basically was like pouring miracle Grow on all of his character flaws. You want to know what money does to you? It turns you into a worse you if that money is not surrendered to the Lord because it's a rival God. So then how do we find this thing called contentment? If I'm supposed to get off the heart to greed every day, contentment is supposed to be what sits there. So how? Well, write this down. It begins when you transfer ownership to God. It begins when you transfer ownership to God. This is just extra. You can write this down. What does that mean? It means there should come a process early in your spiritual walk, I mean a a crisis, where you get before the Lord and you say to Him, I have been too attached to the things in my life. I have been too dependent on the things in my life. Here and now, I'm surrendering it all to you. Do you know the Bible teaches that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof? It's all His anyway. You're stewarding His stuff. He puts you in charge of it temporarily. Your kids, not yours. Your cars, how'd you get those? Through working hard and talent, which God gave you. Therefore, it all belongs to God anyway. It's His, not yours. Saying that back to him, Lord, everything in my life is yours, breaks the power that that sin has. Telling him that you are surrendering it all to him, that you want him to take up his place as the rightful God in your heart, that you want him to watch over your house, to watch over your kids, it breaks the power of the lie of money. Have you had that crisis where you've gone before the Lord and you've said, I surrender it all to you. It's all yours. I can't keep any of it. Help me to manage it well. 
that crisis will free you. I could tell you when, where I was when I had that crisis with the Lord. I said, Lord, there's no way this year. We just had another child. I'm going through seminary. I'm working at a small church. There is no way we can get through this year without you. And God's up there thinking, yeah, there was no way you were getting through last year without me anyway. Way to figure it out. You know, you got to have that crisis where you admit what's already true, that money is a terrible God. And you need God to be your God. Transfer ownership to God. Next, give sacrificially. Follow me here. If God owns everything, that means he's provided you with everything that you enjoy. It's his and it came to you from him. Okay. Um, Based on that, he's therefore the most valuable being in your universe because he's the source of everything that's of value to you. He's the highest and the most beautiful and the most treasured person in your life. Now, if that's true, you're going to find different ways to express that. So I love my wife. She's the most important person in my life. I find ways to show that to her. Okay? And just one of the ways is I buy her things or I, you know. Imagine if just for a month I said, honey, just for a month, I'm not going to spend a single penny on you. Not food. I'm not even going to pay the gas bill. I'm going to go just one month and I'm not even going to spend a penny to show you that I love you. Would that go well for me? Would that go well for me? Would that do damage to the relationship between the person I love? See, and between you and God, I don't want to get all legalistic with you and be like, let me give you a percent that you should give. Or I want you to see this as a relational thing between you and the God you love. See, because if a person is really loved by you, you find ways to show how much they mean to you. Your kids, you find ways to give them things, to tangibly express their worth to you. You do. You do it with everything you value. So for the believer to say, you know, I'm going to give little or nothing to God, that hurts him. It wounds him. And it shows that your heart is not where it needs to be. Because if the most important person in your life is getting little or nothing, there's a disconnect. And it might be a symptom that you have a different God in your heart. God should get more than little or nothing. In fact, you should show how much he's worth by giving sacrificially. If we don't give to the Lord's work in any way, it displays a lack of love and a lack of trust. Okay, Lack of love because this is one way God has commanded in the New Testament for us to serve him. Okay, So you're not loving him the way that he's expecting to be loved. But it also shows lack of trust because you perhaps are thinking, boy, if I give to the Lord, I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills. You don't trust. See? You're trusting money, who you have, more than God. And you have to break through that if you want to grow spiritually. You have to show the love for the Lord by your giving, and you have to show the trust for the Lord by your giving. It's all relational. And that will lead you to contentment. Transfer ownership to God. Give sacrificially. The next one is exercise tremendous restraint. Exercise tremendous restraint. Meaning if, if everything that your money is screaming to bring into your life, you say yes to Money is going to rule your world. There has to be tremendous restraint, waiting on things, um, you know, scaling things back. It all begins with a written budget. If, uh, if you don't have a plan, you really don't have any hope. Perhaps a weekly huddle with your spouse where you can communicate about things and make it a commitment. Every month, we are going to spend less than we make. Whatever it takes, we're not going to trust J.P. Morgan and swipe. In the... It's amazing how your prayer life will grow if you cut up your credit cards. Amazing how much your credit card, how much your prayer life will grow. Exercise tremendous restraint. 
and ask God to, go, to come through. Tell God to come through for you, and he will come through for you, and that will give you contentment. The last sub-point here is this. Embrace accountability. You want to grow in contentment? You've got to sit down with a brother or sister in Christ, and you have to be honest. Maybe with your small group leader or a pastor, you have to say, hey, listen, I just want you to hold me accountable. We drew up a budget, and I just want you to ask me once a month if we talked about it, if we're sticking to it, okay? Or, or we're trying to dig out a debt, and I just want you to know that's a goal, and I want you to ask me how I'm doing. Loving accountability, okay? I'm not saying open up your bankroll to show everybody all your business. I'm saying ask for Hold me accountable. I don't want this year to be the same as last year. I need you to help me. And when you do that, you're going to find contentment. God will transform you. God has grown me in the area of finances so much in my 18 years of faith. I got saved in college. Like as a college student, I didn't know the first thing about money management. you know. Um, and God has really grown me over time to learn discipline and budgeting and, and facts and wisdom and asking for advice. So many things. All of that he's had to build into me. And he'll grow you in this area too. All right, so grow up and pursue spiritual maturity. The first big one is grow out of your love for money. Here's the second one. Write this down. Grow out of your love for power and glory. Write that down. Grow out of your love for power and glory. It says in verse 6, he must not be a recent convert, that's newly planted, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Look at that phrase there, puffed up with conceit. Uh, There. That's a, they're trying to interpret there a Greek phrase for you that basically means um, big like smoke. Puffed up with conceit basically means big like smoke or surrounded in clouds or um, phrases that we use today that could be similar would be, you know, full of hot air, right? Or, or maybe he's blowing smoke or where, where you, the person is like conceited. They're acting bigger than they are. If you take a new believer and you give them power and authority in the church, they're, they're an easy target for the enemy. They're going to get all full of themselves, right? Puffed up with conceit. This picture, I think, is really cool. It's like a picture of this angel who's like surrounded with clouds and glory. And, and behold, the person who thinks, behold, this is who I am. Give me glory. That person who thinks they're that is not going to grow spiritually. And that's why we can't put brand new believers in places of power because they're going to surround themselves with smoke and glory and be like, oh, I am the best. And then Satan's going to take them down. They're just an easy target. Your battle with pride is going to be a daily battle. Um, your b- battle with pride is going to be an every morning battle. Okay? The Bible says you have to clothe yourself with humility. It's a garment you put on and you didn't wake up wearing it. Every day you have to clothe yourself with humility and choose to throw off the filthy garment of your own glory and praise. It's going to be a battle you fight till the day you die. Several years ago, we went through the book of Colossians, and our theme for that year was Mount Everest. Do you remember that? It was kind of a Mount Everest-based series, and it was called uh, Beyond the Limit. We learned a ton about Mount Everest back then. Here's a picture of Everest, uh, you know, it's, it's quite a challenge to climb a mountain that, like, is as high as, like, the cruising altitude of some planes. Like, next time you're in a plane, ask the stewardess to walk down to earth, and that's what it's like to climb Everest. <laughs> it's that high. Uh, here's another picture. Everest, uh, you don't just climb there. You can't just, like, walk up to the top of Everest because your body is not suited to the conditions. There's not enough oxygen. What you have to do is you have to, like, climb up to base camp and then sit for a while. 
then you've got to climb up to Camp 1, spend a day there, and then go back down to let your body recover from trying to die. Then you go back up to Camp 1, then you go up to Camp 2, and then you come back down because, again, your body is trying to die. Then you get all the way up to, like, Camp 4, and you get one crack at making it up to the summit. And you better be back by sundown because your body can't survive at that altitude for longer than 24 hours. Okay? And there's hazards up there that, they, that um, all the climbers have to watch out for. Hazards like this. Here's a picture of some of the things they have to cross while they're climbing Everest. They're going across this giant ice chasm on like ladders from Home Depot. <laughs> what do you got? I got a ladder. Let's just string them together and die. So then, but then the higher up you get, the higher up you get, your body starts freaking out. And one of the most dangerous things that can happen is when you get all the way up there, because of the oxygen deprivation, your brain starts to expand, okay? And when your brain starts to expand, um, you start to hallucinate, and you don't see things clearly. All right, follow me here, and you're going you're gonna to figure out the spiritual lesson here. The higher up you go on the mountain, the bigger your head starts to get. See that? And as you get higher, you start getting this big head. It's called, medically, it's a cerebral edema. Your head swells. And do you know what happens? The Sherpas, look at, the Sherpas watch for this. What happens is your body starts telling you things like, you know, you're hot. You need to take your, your snowsuit off. So out of nowhere, on top of Everest, some dude starts taking his snow boots off and his gloves off and his coat off. Why? Because his brain's telling him he's hot, not cold. And then, if they don't catch him then, what he does is he knows he's got to get back down to base camp. He thinks he can just walk there, over the cliff. So people have walked over the side of Everest because they're hallucinating, because they're a big head, and they've died. So the Sherpa has to tackle them before they walk over the side of the mountain. And do you know the only way you can save their life? is to get them to a lower altitude so their head can come back. Spiritually, I think you see where I'm going. The higher you think you get up on the mountain of life and the bigger you think you are, the bigger your head gets, the more you're delusional. You're not thinking straight. And the only way God can save you is to slam you down lower than you've ever been before, which is why the Bible says pride goes before a fall, haughty spirit before destruction. It's for your own spiritual good. And listen, when we're early in our faith, we have to understand that we are not here in this world for our own glory and honor. This world is not a banquet in your honor. It's a banquet in the honor of Jesus Christ. Therefore, you show up to the banquet and you take the lowest seat and you allow Jesus to invite you to do anything that he wants to. He gives you any honor you get in this life and you just thank him for it. This world is not a banquet in your honor and glory. And if you live for your glory, your head's going to get big and God is going to slam you down. It's called pride. It's conceit. It says here, he must not be a recent convert in verse 6 or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. That could mean two things. That can either mean condemnation of the devil, meaning the devil was condemned. You know his story, right? He was an angel. He was one of the most glorious angels. He was filled with pride because he wanted to be God. God didn't allow that. He threw him down. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. He's a fallen angel. Okay? So Satan endured condemnation. And um, this might be saying, if you put a new believer in a leadership position, same thing's going to happen to him. He's going to be condemned just like the devil was. Or this can mean that the devil himself is going to bring some sort of reproach or some sort of discipline or punishment on that Christian, meaning the condemnation that Satan's going to bring. Um, he's going to fall into the snare of the devil. Either could work, scripturally. Uh, both could be true. 
he must not be a recent convert. He may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Those are non-believers. So in the church and outside the church, he needs to have a good reputation so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Do you see that last phrase, snare of the devil? Satan is setting traps for you and me. Traps. You know what a trap is, right? You ever had mice in the garage? We had mice in the garage, so we had to set some mouse traps. Some of them whack you, some of them are poison, right? Uh, We set a few traps with the poison, and then the dog got into the trap and ate the poison. Our dog last week, he thought it was the tastiest thing he had ever had. It was like, what is this green goodness? Give me more of it. I was like, come on, we got to go to the pet ER, and they had to flush his system out. He's going to be fine. But he ate the poison. He thought it was Twinkies. But, you know, here's a mouse trap. If you have mice in the garage, here's a mouse trap. And trap is basically two things, bait and pain, right? Bait plus pain equals trap. Uh, Some mice are smarter than others. This is a picture of a mouse that we tried to catch in our house. That's a mouse trying to avoid the trap. That's a smart mouse. Here's another picture. This is a bear trap. If you want to get a bear, same principle, you know, you've got bait, pain. And Satan is setting some things up in your life with his limited ability to do so where he's putting bait with pain. Bait, pain. And he's making it smell good and taste good, but it's bait. And then there's pain if you fall into the trap, the snare. Okay, and just like when my dog swallowed that hole, there was pain that followed. Same thing with Christians. When we fall into the trap, the snare, when we take the bait, there's going to be pain that follows. What would a human trap look like? Money. Money. It's bait to let that sit up on the throne of your heart. And then, bam, trap, pain. Power, new responsibility. Look at my title. Guess what I get to do? Power. It's a human trap. Bait. Behold how great I am. Pain. The enemy is going to try and trap you with pride and with money. We have to be wise. 1 Timothy 1.20, we'll put it on the screen, says this. It says, Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Meaning there were Christians who were refusing to repent, and now Satan was going to come after them and bring pain. Here's another verse, 2 Timothy 2.26 says this, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Some Christians are trapped up in the lies of the enemy and they're enduring pain because they took the bait. And two of the areas that we have to be careful are the money and the power. They're traps. They can bring pain into our lives. What does it mean to Struggle with power. How do I know if I have a problem with power or pride? Well, biblically, here's some symptoms of being a lover of power. You can jot these down. Somebody who loves power treats people very poorly. The phrase in the Bible is you lord it over others. You lord, what does it mean to lord it over others? You treat people poorly. You just treat people like trash. 1 Corinthians 13 is not the way you treat people. You treat people like animals. Um, you're horrible towards people at times. Your tone, your word choice, your heart. It's because you love power. Next, you broadcast your celebrity. Meaning you're overly conscious of your own glory, your own connections, your own credentials, your own income. How great am I? 
And you want everyone else around you to know who you know, who you are. So you broadcast your celebrity. How can you truly prove, oh, this guy, he loves power. It's hard to prove that. But symptoms would be he's terrible towards people and he tells everyone how awesome he is. He broadcasts his celebrity. That's a symptom that you love power. Next, you compare yourself to others endlessly. Always, well, he's this and I'm that. and He's not this and I'm that. Always comparison, comparison, comparison. Making sure everyone knows where you are at on the rank. That's loving power. Next, you clothe yourself in anger. You clothe yourself in anger because everyone else needs to realize who you are. So when they don't, you give yourself an anger pass to blow up. And, and then when someone confronts you, you say, well, it's just you know, part of my personality. Or, it's just periodic. It's not really who I am. You know, and, and, but the Bible says that everyone should be slow to anger. So who gives you the free pass? Anger can be a display that you love power. Also, being double-tongued, being double-tongued or deceitful in your speech to try and control the damage your personality is doing, to try and dull the truth about your nature and your heart. You're double-tongued, you're deceitful, you're trying to manipulate people because you love power and you'll abuse it. I don't know, the fight with power is going to never be over. You're going to always wake up wearing the U-shirt that's soaked in pride And you're going to have to take it off every day and throw it aside and clothe yourself in humility and remind yourself that I have to take up a cross and follow a Savior who died for me, right? It's going to be a daily thing. Daily, we have to take up our cross, humble ourselves, and follow Him. But when it comes to leaders, listen, this rounds it out. We just need men, it says at the beginning, who must be above reproach. And here it says it again. We must be well thought of. Inside the church, outside the church, you shouldn't be finding a guy who others are are like, he loves money, he loves power, he's no good. Any of these traps can snare him up. And this is a design for everyone growing up to maturity and discipleship in the Lord. I told you at the beginning that this is a Christmas sermon. You still don't believe me, do you? He lied! This is a Christmas sermon. When you look at the manger, do you know what you see? When you look at the baby who came down to save you, do you know what you see? The opposite of a love for money and power. The exact opposite. In Philippians 2, verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held tightly to, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He, get this, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus left all of his heavenly power aside to come here for Christmas to rescue you. Letting go of the power that was rightly his is what led to the birth of your king. How foolish it is as Christians when we try and hoard all the power we can in this life. That's the opposite of what our Savior did. He set aside all of his power and glory so you can end up in glory with him. If we're going to be a church on mission, we need men and women who are letting go of their personal power and glory to bring others into the glorious presence of God forever. That's the heart of the Christmas message. What about money? 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this, 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he was rich. Streets of gold in heaven. You'd spend a day in heaven, you'd never want to come back to this earth again. He spent forever in heaven. In the eternal, awesome, holy presence of God with angels singing to him. He was rich beyond the money, beyond the gold. I mean, rich in every way. And he became poor. He had nothing. He left all of his stuff so that you could become rich in heaven with him forever. How foolish it is when Christians hoard the treasures of this life. It's so against what Christmas stands for. Our God who let go of all of his riches to come down. He became poor so that others can be saved. We're supposed to be letting go and sacrificing just like Jesus did so that others can be made rich in heaven, not so that others can make us rich on earth. It's the heart of the Christmas message. It's the heart of the gospel to sacrifice with our things so people can be saved, to let go of our power and glory so others can find out about God's power and glory. That's Christianity. And as we close here, I just want you to, again, focus on the manger and allow that truth about our Savior to set an example in your heart and to help break you free from the love of power and the love of money. Let's pray. Jesus, you let go of power to come here to save us. You also shared power, told your disciples to go and make disciples. Thank you that you didn't hoard all of that or keep all of that glory to yourself. Keep all that power away from from us. You shared it. Thank you that we're going to be able to enjoy the riches of heaven forever. Thank you that you became poor so that we could become children of the King. Lord, help us deep within our hearts to not let money rule us. Help us deep within our hearts to not let personal glory ruin us. Humble us. Teach us to be sacrificial so that the mission can go forward. And fill this church, fill our families, fill our own hearts with a spirit of sacrifice and humility. We pray this by your gospel and thank you for Christmas that proves you are a humble, sacrificial God. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen.